Hello folks, how are you? Hope this finds you well. Um, welcome along to another episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Uh, thank you so much for choosing to listen to this episode. If this is your first time joining us or if you are a serial listener, um, the same amount of gratitude and thanks is coming your way. Really appreciate you taking the time because I know there is so much out there when it comes to podcasts. Um, I'm getting quite excited because this time of year is always the kind of, you know, you've got Venice Film Festival on the way, which is kind of the sort of start of award season, weirdly, for all those films that are going to be up for contention for your consideration, which means that we start to get access to some pretty big names um, and also some new names as well, just films that we are really really excited about and there's a lot on the way there is a lot of stuff coming and a lot of people that I've already reached out to to try and see if I can get them on the podcast Olivia Wilde being one of them for Don't Worry Darling because which I saw last week and I'm very excited to chat to her about that because music plays a very big part in the film anyway I'll probably self-combust if I talk any more about it but nevertheless there is a lot of great stuff coming and I'm definitely reaching out to try and get uh, as many people as possible and if there's any suggestions that you have of people to get on the podcast. I love hearing from you uh, and I love hearing your suggestions on who you'd like to hear on the show. You can do that really easily by just dropping me an email. It's info at edithbowman.com. Got a really nice email from Lydia this week. She said, hi, Ed, I absolutely love your podcast and I'd love it even more if you got self-esteem on, aka Rebecca. She created the soundtrack for the Prima Facie stage show. Not a film score, I know, but it is so powerful. Makes me cry every time I listen to it. I'd love to hear more from heart about the creative process. Thank you so much for your podcast. Hope you're having a brilliant day. Best wishes, Lydia. Lydia, thank you so much indeed. Now, um, we I actually did get the opportunity to speak to um, Rebecca, aka Self-Esteem, for my Play Next podcast that I do with BMW. And we had a really candid conversation about so much stuff. So if you want to pop across and listen to that, you can hear a really good chat with Rebecca about that. Just search, search for um, Play Next on wherever you get your podcasts. But that said, Prima Fassi obviously has had a huge success at the cinema and weirdly it was filmed uh, the night that I went along to see it for an NT Live, which has been out in cinemas and has done an, a roaring trade, which is so great. Such a great thing, isn't it, to be to have access to theatre that way because, you know, tickets are so hard to come by. If you haven't been along to see it yet, then check out your local uh, cinema and see if it is up still because I highly recommend that you do. It's an amazing collaborative process between J Jodie Comer who's this one woman show she's just mind-blowingly brilliant in it uh, Susie Miller who wrote and directed it and Rebecca Self-Esteem who did the music for it it would be great Lydia you've got a little kind of seed planted a seed in my head to try and get the three of them together to do a special episode of it so I will I will ask and so watch this space and we'll see what I can do but very excited because our latest guest on Soundtracking is a composer with well a hugely diverse body of work, ranging from big, yep, we all remember that that scene with the piano, mm -hmm, to Seven, um, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, to Silence of the Lambs. Howard Shore, he's collaborated with Martin Scorsese on a number of occasions, famously scored Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies. And he's also provided musical accompaniment to 16 of David Cronenberg's films, including his latest Crimes of the Future. And it's with a cue from Crimes of the Future that we'll begin. This is Inner Beauty Pageant.
Hi, Edith. Good to meet you. Oh, it's an absolute treat to get to, to meet you, sir. Hope you're having a good day so far. Uh, just waking up. Oh, bless you. Sorry to be early doors for you. I mean, I've been lucky enough to talk a lot about your work on, on our podcast, uh, Soundtracking, as you can imagine. Uh, it's featured quite heavily, whether it be with Peter Jackson or the wonderful David Fincher or many, many others. So thank you for your time. And um, Crimes of the Future, what I love about going along to watch a Cronenberg film is it's like no other experience, I think, in terms of going to the cinema. He leaves you as a, a film fan and a, a fan of storytelling, just kind of thinking and asking a lot of questions. Is that part of the attraction for you with this beautiful and, and long-term relationship that you've had as collaborators? Yes, it's a, it's a way of uh, using film to express David's ideas. It's always fascinating and it always moves forward. We never look back. It's always mm. something new and exciting. How did he introduce Crimes of the Future to you? Well, I knew Crimes of the Future from a script that David wrote. He sent it to me many years ago. This is something he's wanted to do for, for quite a long time. Mm. And, uh, you know, finally, I think this is our 16th film together. Finally, we were able to make it. Why do you think it took so long? What was the, or what, what allowed this to finally be made, do you think? I don't know. David had some other films he wanted to do before. And then he took kind of a hiatus, you know, for uh, maybe six or seven years. And uh, Robert Lantos reminded David, the producer reminded David of this script, Crimes of the Future, that he had written many years ago, and he wanted to produce it. So uh, Lantos was really the one who kind of put the pieces together to make it work. And where do you start when you're working with uh, on one of David's projects? You know, is, is that has that kind of process developed and changed over the years in terms of how and where you are involved in a project or is it always the same it's so, somewhat the same it's he's uh he's very trusting we've worked together a long time so he he always sends me uh the script when he's finished with it if it's an adaption uh i always go back to the original source to the novel or the play on which it's based you know, we start talking initially about casting. So I really am involved quite early on in the, process, in the creative process of making the film. What were the discussions you had about how this film would sound and, and what that collaboration would be on, on the music that was required as part of the, the narrative and a character in this film? Yeah, well, we talked about the uh, different ways of using music in film. And I think David's always been very open to different ideas. And I approached this rather differently because I wanted to create uh, the world of crimes mm. of the future. It's a fictional world, but I wanted to create that uh, with the uh, sounds that I was working with. This is not an orchestral score, although it does use the Penderecki uh, string quartet in a few scenes, but it's mostly electronics, which were developed over about six or seven months to 
you know, create something that was original, unique mm-hmm. to this particular way of telling the story. Do the performances inspire you? I mean, are you still writing whilst it's been shot or after it's been shot? Or how is that? Because, I mean, Vigo in this is just extraordinary. I mean, every across the board, the performances are great, but there's there's something in this particular performance from him as well. And this, I think this marriage of the score that you've right. created, that's just a beautiful synergy. I start working very early on uh, with the script away from the imagery. And I write thematically uh, based on the ideas inherent in the script. And then I compile that. Once I have all of the themes and motifs that I want to use in the film, then I approach the film in terms of scoring it. And where do I place these uh, thematic ideas in the film? It's similar to the way I work when I write orchestral scores, because I'm still Mm -hmm. uh, notating uh, everything, but in this sense, I'm programming it electronically, using a lot of abstract colors, and uh, you know, creating something that's unique to this film. there's these wonderful moments these kind of um you know kind of art performances installations that work and and the the technology that's used in those i don't want to give too much away for people who haven't seen the film so i'll be i'll be slightly elusive about describing this but but in those in those moments for those performances those pieces of medical equipment they're almost like dancers in a way they're almost kind of the choreography of it as well and the way that 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 leah or vigo's hands work across that kind of um that device that they use to kind of, you know, direct all these movements of these kind of medical procedures. It's really rhythmical. It's really beautiful. It's, it's, it's like a dance sort of choreographed, as I said. Right. Uh, This goes back to early uh, films, which I did with David, like scanners 
and uh, Videodrome, where I created the source music as well as the score, which is kind of unusual. It doesn't usually happen that way. But uh, what I was trying to do back in those early films uh, was to keep the audience immersed into the world. So we didn't use any source music because there's no real time period or, you know, there's no cultural reference in Crimes of the Future. So in those see, those performance scenes, I'm creating the source music and using that kind of a score, but it is music that is playing in the scene, you know, through a very large uh, sound system. And yeah, yeah. that track is it called Clinic? Clinic? Clinic. Yes. A, yeah. I mean, I actually imagine you might have a kind of. Uh, a dance club hit on your hands there, Howard, because I can right. absolutely see that being played, you know, at clubs all over the place and at festivals and people properly raving out to that track. Uh, that was the idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope, I hope like, you know, we kind of see these big DJs playing it out at clubs and stuff because it's, you kind of, whilst you watch the film, you kind of feel like you're at a rave. It's absolutely, absolutely yeah. brilliant. interesting what you were talking about earlier about with David in particular if you're you know this long relationship you've gone worked on with him some of those projects are original material some of them are adaptations and for you how important is that original material you know whether it's um George Langland's The Fly or or Burroughs Naked Lunch you know in terms of going back to those to really get to the core of the story well, we've done a lot of literary adaptions, J.G. Ballard's Crash and William yeah. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, uh, Dangerous Method mm. w- was an adaption. Uh, David is uh, kind of a complicated man, and he, you know, he's very well read. And there were things that he wanted to make that weren't original ideas of his, you know, just ideas he wanted to create, put into film. Yeah. But I particularly like his original ideas and his original scripts. And we hadn't done one since, I think, Existence. And uh, so Crimes of the Future, you know, it's pretty special. Absolutely is. And it was really interesting. I was listening to an interview with you when you were talking at the Oxford Union a few years back and, and talking about the Lord of the Rings films is that, you know, that source material was so important to you going yeah. back to to really getting to the essence of the characters the story the worlds i guess as well when it's something so huge like that i like to read so i like to go back always to the original authors and study the original works and then i study the screenplay 
and then I write. I put everything away once I've I've absorbed everything I want to research in terms of a period or a you know a certain culture. And then I start to approach the film visually with the music that I've written from the ideas from the novel, the play, the screenplay. The music for for those the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogies are just they're kind of life affirming in a way. And, and it's funny I've got two boys and they've They've absolutely, it's lovely to get the, the opportunity to re-watch those films through a new generation yeah. and through their, their eyes as well. And the way they react to those to the music in those films is, it's so beautiful. And I, I hope you acknowledge that you, you know, not just that work, but speaking about this particularly, have created absolutely something wonderful that transcends generations. It was very inspiring uh, to work with Tolkien's uh, uh, novel. I think the connection that I had with Tolkien was through nature, because I also live in a uh, forest and very connected to nature, as I know that he was in reading about him. And he writes about everything green and good. And I think that was part of the, you know, the inspiration for me was to interpret his works through some of these common ideas that he had. So again, what I'm trying to do is kind of go back to the original author and express those, those ideas. And I had his languages to work with, which was mm. really a wonderful thing to be able to, to work with. We were very lucky that we um, we had uh, a live version of this podcast at the BFI with Mr. Tim Burton, who who came out and talked us through his, you know, just some of his wonderful films. And we asked him part of the night was for him to pick a film that the audience would watch after our, our podcast record. The audience wouldn't know what that film was and he could pick anything. And we managed to get a 35 mil print of Edward, which he chose. <laughs> Right. And it was so lovely, the audience's reaction when we revealed what the film was. It was a beautiful, audible kind of celebration yeah. of it being that film. And I, I hope you don't mind if we talk about that and a couple of other other you know films that you've worked on. But that's a very special score. And particularly because it's about a real person and it's almost trying to demystify the, the, the perception of that person and that world, I think, as well. And going back to something that's you know, that era of kind of the monster movies in the late 50s and that kind of thing as well. Was that fun yeah. to work on that film? Tremendous fun, yes. Uh, Tim Burton, a great director and creates this wonderful atmosphere of creativity. And working with a character like Ed Wood was wonderful because mm. you could not do any wrong. Everything was wonderful, whether it was a mistake or not, which was part of the Ed Wood kind of mythology. And uh, it was just a joy working on that. And I love that period 
mm. in uh, music, late fifties in music and film. Uh, so that, it was just a great uh, project for me to, to work on. project does it give you the opportunity to explore kind of something new or or are you still learning as a creative because with that as an example you know the theremin is a very big part of of the color of that score were you well versed in the theremin or was it something you explored and researched and you know and and learn as you were preparing and creating for that score yeah The, the interesting thing about uh film music for me was to be able to go into different periods and to work in, uh, you know, periods like Aviator were around the uh, change from the silent films into uh, sound. And so, you know, I really kind of explored those different eras, the 30s, the 40s, 50s, the 60s. Ed Wood was right in that beautiful center of uh, sci-fi pictures and music of the late late 50s and the theremin was something that i was aware of and i knew about but it gave me the opportunity to really delve into you know the players that are virtuosos now lydia cavina played the music of uh ed wood uh she came from she lives at was living in moscow at the time she was uh, she's a relation of the inventor of Leon Theremin, who invented the theremin in the 20s. Wow. Uh, in Moscow. Yeah. So film was that was always an exciting part of film to me was being able to study these different periods in music. That's what really makes film music really quite interesting. Kind of looking over your the, the 
incredible collection and selection of films that you've worked on as well. And and it's lovely because you, you know, as a film fan, you go back and you go, oh my God, he worked on that one. You know, and whether it's something like Big back in 1986, which was just a beautiful film. It was just something, as a film that I kind of just talk about so much with people, kind of particularly you've got kids and I love going back and show my kids films that I watched as a child, you know, and Big is one of them as well. And that was a, that was such a beautiful film. What do you remember about working with Penny on Big? Well, you know, that was a chance to really create uh, a score that could have been in a Hollywood film. And it was the first film I recorded in Hollywood. It was then at Fox Studios. And that's really what I was hoping to achieve was this classic type of Hollywood sound. Mm. And so that was really kind of the in, the interest in, in it for me. Uh, Michael Lang, who we just watched, was the pianist who did all those beautiful piano solos uh, in Big. And of course, we did the scene at uh, in the toy store, FAO Schwartz. And, uh, you know, it was a particularly interesting period to work in Big. has made you say yes over the years to to working with directors and working on particular films because there's such a range of things whether it's right. you know working with a director on one of them like I don't know Kevin Smith on Dogma or working with right. David Fincher on Seven in the Game or there's you know there's Mrs Doubtfire you know there's an it's just everything in all these <laughs> wonderful collections but what makes you right. want to work on these I just tried different things I mean in 1986 I I scored uh Big, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. and also Martin Scorsese's uh, After Hours, mm -hmm. and also The Fly, Cronenberg's The Fly, in the in that one year, and it's a that yeah, <laughs> it's such a good mix. It was like Big, The Fly, and After Hours. <laughs> After that, I was just offered so many different opportunities to try, and so I tried different things. Oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll try that. That's something I haven't quite done before, or that's mm. an interesting period. So really, I'm a composer. My interest has always been in music, and film offered opportunities to try different uh, things, you know, different types of orchestration, working with different musicians. I worked with the London Philharmonic a lot all through the 90s and leading up to Fellowship of the Ring. So really, that whole period of the late 80s and 90s gave me a lot of opportunity to try a lot of different orchestrations. I was on the podium a lot conducting. I was or or orchestrating the scores. And so it was a good opportunity. What about Seven, which is up there in my kind of, you know, when my top films of of all time, there's there's something incredible about that film that you can watch over and over and over again. And the score for that film is so important on so many levels in terms of it's kind of almost a kind of, it's a dive into characterization of those different individuals. It's also part of the narrative. It's, it's just drives attention. It's, it's got so many roles within that film. What do you remember about working on seven with Fincher? Uh, well, it's a pretty intense story and the, the, the music's quite dark. 
the ending is particularly of interest mm. to me and how how that uh, music played in those final those final scenes and i knew that ending was coming of course mm. and so i kind of worked my way through the film up to that beautiful uh, ending That score was recorded with a rather large orchestra. I think it was over 90. It was done wow. in Los Angeles. And, and uh, I orchestrated it also for quite large percussion uh, section, mostly playing bowed tams and bowed cymbals. And it was probably about eight or eight or nine percussionists on that recording. And it, it's all a live, pretty much all a live recording. There's a bit of electronics added to it, as there was in Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs was written before uh, Seven, but Seven kind of grew out of the writing. That's what I was saying earlier. It's like one project le led to another, one film led to another. Mm. And I would use certain techniques uh, that I experimented with on one film and use it in it. The next film, like, for instance, in Cronenberg's M. Butterfly, I used two orchestral harps, which was the first time that I'd ever set them in the orchestra left and right. Then I was writing the score to Crash, and I wrote, it for, I wrote a counterpoint for three orchestral harps. So the score to Crash is all based on this three-part counterpoint. So I kind of kept expanding the compositional ideas as I went from film to film. mentioned Silence of the Lambs, I had the absolute pleasure of getting to sit with Jodie Foster last year for a celebration of the anniversary of that film. And she was delightful and so generous with yeah. kind of going back in time to talking yeah. about 
the experience of making that film. And something I noticed about rewatching that was the, and it was interesting because I heard you talk about it as well, about how as a composer, you're, you're, you're very aware and supportive and celebratory of the importance of silence at moments and how much it's as important yeah. as where the music's placed as to where it's not placed as well. Well, it is. That, that, that's, that has to do with the spotting session with the director. I mean, where do you use silence? Uh, where do you use music in the film? Why is it there? What's required? You know, with something like Jonathan Demme, the great director, who uh, d- directed Silence of the Lambs, in one of our early sessions, he mentioned taking Clarice's point of view. Clarice is the Jodie Foster character, which was kind of a unique thing to do in a essentially a horror thriller. Like, generally, it would have been the emphasis would have been placed on, on, on the Lecter character, Anthony Hopkins' character. So by taking that point of view, it directed the score in such a way that it made it very unique to me uh, for that type of genre film. And uh, it had a real heart and soul to it in the kind of more personal way that I approached it to the mm. Clarice Starling character. There's that scene with the night vision, with the goggles, and, you know, so many directors and composers, they would have kind of thrown music at that whole section, but the way that it kind of, the emphasis is almost on her breath and her sounds and and the kind of, you can feel, and you, you feel like you're looking through those goggles yourself almost in a way. Right. But then the moment the music comes in, it's just, oh man, it's, it's like a sucker punch. It's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so great. It's great direction. Jonathan was known for using music really well in films. He was really great at it, and he loved working with music.
when you went with someone like Scorsese with something like The Departed, which you have to find this this kind of, you know, it's interesting we were talking about when we were talking about um, crimes of the future and wanting to create all the music, there not being any existing music. But with something like The Departed, which has that kind of, that real weight on the stones, for example, you have to mad it, you have to, you know, it has to, it has to fit. The score has to right. fit in that world with it. How do you kind of navigate that? And what are the conversations you have with Mr. Scorsese about that? We were lucky to have um, right. the beautiful Thelma Schoonmaker on the show talking about working as his oh, editor. Yeah. She's yeah. a, oh, she's one of the most amazing individuals to chat to. Wow. I love, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I love being in her company. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But what, what's, how do you kind of navigate that sort of, you know, as a composer? Yeah. The, the thing with The Departed, in the same way that Jonathan found the cent- Jonathan Demi found the center of the Clarice character in Silence of the Lambs, uh, Martin Scorsese in The Departed uh, said that all these characters are all uh, duplicitous. You don't know who you know what the, you're searching for the truth, but the characters are very deceiving, and they're all dancing around each other. He said, "Why not try a dance, a tango?" And so most of the score is based around this thematic idea of a tango. I wrote a tango and then, you know, played that in various versions thematically through the film. Kind of a tribute in Gangs in New York as well with working with with Marty again on that to yeah. to Elmer Bernstein and and it's it's really lovely where there's a kind of you can kind of feel him in, as part of the score. I hope you take that as a compliment. But with something yeah. like that, where it's is is in a is in a period and it's got a real kind of specific energy to it as well. Where did right. you start with Gangs? I kind of dreamt it. <laughs> yeah. I watched beautiful, the, beautiful. Yeah, I watched the film, and and then I wrote that thematic idea, which a lot of the score is based on, and yeah. it just it came from a dream, really, after seeing the film. Wow, that's what I say. Sometimes I like to go beyond the film, yeah, musically. Like I'm not studying the film or looking at the film. I'm just dreaming and thinking about it, and sometimes the best ideas come through that way.
And then do you sit with a pencil and, and music paper? I do. I mean, that's the wow. way I, I compose. I write uh, harmony and counterpoint. I do use like four to six line sketches. Mm-hmm. And then I orchestrate it in ink, uh, a 30 stave. And then I conduct. And uh, I used to conduct a lot more before the pandemic. But mm-hmm. uh, these days, I'm happy composing and orchestrating. And just before we run out of time, if you don't mind, if that's okay, Howard, are, am I right in believing you're returning to Middle Earth as well for the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power? Well, I think that's been covered very well in the press. <laughs> so I don't really need to comment too that's much. That's okay. No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. Listen, I'm so excited to to continue to be absolutely inspired by the work that you do. And thank you for everything you've given us as film fans, you know, up until this point, because it's been a, yeah, we very much feel the the, the power of your creativity and what we Great. enjoy at the cinema. It's been a thank pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Thanks, Howard. Take care. score to crimes of the future that's surgery in the new sex rounding off this latest episode of soundtracking with legendary composer howard shore my huge thanks to howard for taking the time to talk to us crimes of the future is on general release now and it's classic cronenberg dripping with gore style big ideas in equal measure huge questions and just a cinematic experience like no other and i think that's what you always get with a cronenberg film any film that receives a six-minute stand innovation at Cannes has got to be worth checking out, right? Come on. Howard showed as well. I would love to have him back on the show because I feel like we only definitely scratched the surface, but I hope you got a real sense of his joy in his creativity talking about a number of projects he's worked on over the years. Head to edithbowman.com if you want to hear my conversations with some of the directors that he's worked with, including Peter Jackson, Tim Burton, and the wonderful James Mangold. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do send an email to info at edithbowman.com about, well, whatever takes your fancy. It could be about who you want to see on the show uh, or it just could be about a film you've seen, whatever it is. Talking about films uh, that you might want to see, See How They Run is out in cinemas on Friday. If you've seen the trailer, it's got, I mean, so many names in it. Saoirse Ronan, Sam Rockwell... Uh, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson, the brilliant Shirley Henderson, David Oyelowo, uh, Reese Shearsmith, Tim Key. And it's been directed by a pretty new director called Tom George. Now, Tom is very talented and he's done lots of things, including this country. He did all of this country and he's worked on this film with Daniel Pemberton, friend of the show. Uh, Together, they have made what I think is a really fun, quite different film you think it's a murder mystery but it's lots of different things one thing that it does show off for me is just once again how brilliant Saoirse Ronan is 
And she's got this great on-screen partnership with Sam Rockwell. They work brilliantly together. So it's out in cinemas on Friday. See How They Run is the name of the film. And then on next week's show, we have Daniel Pemberton, composer and director Tom George joining us. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>